From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 98. I go back about 15 years with today's guest. He was actually Cressy Sports Performance's first uh, employee and turned out to be an amazing resource for us, not just as a strength and conditioning coach, but also on the nutrition front. We've stayed in touch over the years. He's taught me a lot and, and just become an awesome resource whenever I have questions on nutrition, supplementation, anything you can imagine. Um, I think this is a really good episode, not just for our higher level athletes who may be looking for advanced strategies, but also for our parents and our young athletes who are listening um, as they work through some of the foundational principles of high quality nutrition um, from optimizing performance on the baseball field. So this will be a really good one that I think will have resounding lessons uh, across multiple populations. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. you get got essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest is the Director of Nutrition at Precision Nutrition, working with a host of fitness professionals, lead athletes, and professional sports teams. They include U.S. Open champion Sloan Stevens, the San Antonio Spurs, Cleveland Browns, and several more. Prior to his work with Precision Nutrition, he worked for three years at Cressy Sports Performance Massachusetts as the head sports nutritionist and as a strength and conditioning coach, working with hundreds of athletes and recreational exercisers of all types. He's the author of the High Performance Handbook Nutrition Guide, the Show and Go Nutrition Guide, and Ultimate Hockey Nutrition. He's also the co-author of the Precision Nutrition System and Precision Nutrition's Level 1 Certification Textbook entitled Essentials of Sports and Exercise Nutrition. He's a registered dietitian with a master's degree in food science and human nutrition. He's also a certified sports nutritionist as well as a certified strength and conditioning specialist. As part of the Precision Nutrition mission, he helps to deliver life-changing, research-driven health and fitness coaching for everyone. Please welcome to the show, Brian St. Pierre. Welcome to the show, Brian, and thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Eric. Looking forward to it. So we have known each other. Uh, I'd say we're going on 15 years now. Um, yeah, pr- probably pretty close. So the, here, here's, I'll, I'll tell a brief story for folks to, to set the stage. So 2007, uh, excuse me, 2006, I think you first reached out to me. You're a, a young, enthusiastic strength coach slash nutrition guy in Maine. You wanted to come down and observe. And it was kind of right as we were talking about opening CSP. You originally planned to come down. I'm like, hey, I'm 
we opened a facility. So you came there and as luck would have it, you arrived in our original dungeon, the, 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 I'd say version 1.0, which was a a tetanus factory um, of CSB. We hadn't scraped the the rust off the windows. Um, In fact, our bathroom stall at that original facility was a shutter that was just like balancing up. Um, So parents were so impressed. Yeah, no, we were really making the state of Maine proud, weren't we? Um, So anyway, you showed up and it just so happened that it was on the day that all of our power racks uh, arrived and uh, you know, you were expected to come down and, you know, see some cutting edge, you know, training and all that stuff. And, uh, maybe, maybe a lot of stuff that you'd been familiarized with my writings and stuff like that. Instead, you, you rolled up your sleeves and you assembled power racks for the day. And we were so blown away, obviously that you became the, the first intern in CSB history, or at least one of the first. And you also subsequently became, um, you know, one of the, the first staff member we ever had, Tony and, and Pete and I hired you. And, I always look back and I say that I will never go wrong hiring people who came from self-employed parents. And I know your dad owned a paint store in Lewiston, Maine, and you spent a lot of time stocking paint, selling paint, painting, whatever it is. And it, mm. it didn't go unnoticed in your work ethic. So, um, and I know that's continued to this day. So we're, we're proud to know you and, and very, very appreciative of all you contributed, you know, early on in the business and, and you still do from afar to this day. So oh, that's, that's awesome. And I, I appreciate the, I love the story. Um, and I appreciate the kind words and it's, it's the feeling is mutual because it allowed, you know, my career to go in all kinds of awesome directions as well. So. Um, and I have a, a million old photos of you usually like lying on the floor, semi-conscious after pushing the sled. Or, oh my God. Um, uh, puking into trash cans after pushing ourselves way too hard, but we'll, we'll, we'll not use those for the podcast. Right? That sounds good. We'll, we'll put up nice nutrition pictures. Um, but anyway, so you were, like I said, you were first employee all the way back in 2008. And um, it was a, it was actually, you know, something we hired you because you were a great dude and you were a great fit for our culture. But, you know, we also came to realize really quickly that you had, you know, a unique skill set that could really offer something that our athletes didn't have at that point. And that was, you know, nutrition advising. Um, and so one of your initial undertakings was to set up a nutrition consultation program with our athletes. Um, so we're 13 years later and, and I'm curious, you know, what was it then and how was your approach to managing the athlete? slash dietitian that you are an RD, um, how has that interaction changed, you know, and, and maybe what new strategies are you employing now that allow you to get better buy-in and success rates than you did back in 2008? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. Great. Obviously a lot has changed, um, in 13 years, right. My understanding, my experience, I got a lot more reps in coaching people than, you know, I did when I was, relatively fresh out of college and, and just taking the first crack at it. So I'd say my approach has, has changed in, in numerous ways. Um, first, and by far, I'd say most importantly, I have become what I would say is much more client-centered in my approach. And what I mean by that is, like, I want to get to know the athlete, like, as a person, what are their likes and dislikes, what do they value or what's important to them, uh, like, what do they want to accomplish, what are their goals, what skills do they already have that we can leverage these kinds of things. Whereas, and not that I, I didn't care about those things 13 years ago, but it was a smaller focus. And my larger focus was on here's all the information I know, and here are all the things you need to do. And additionally, like I want to understand their life context and, and circumstances, right? What are their various environments like, like at home or at work or at school, right? That we can leverage to help them. What supports do they have in place to help them achieve their goals, like social supports? So their agent, uh, teammates, family members, spouse or partner, do they have kids, another job? Are they taking care of an ailing parent if I'm working with a, you know, an, an older athlete? Or what other competing demands do they have, right? Those kinds of things. And I know it can sound superfluous uh, to eating or nutrition, but in reality, when you learn more about who they are as a person and their life and their circumstances, it makes working with an athlete or any client for that matter, like so much easier, right? And then you can help them build nutrition skills and and employ the key nutrition principles within the context of their particular life. And you can do it so much more easily because you can come up with strategies and approaches that are tailored to their particular needs, right? There are some things we know all athletes need to do, 
but we can't all, they can't all do them the same way because they all have different circumstances, right? You have three kids and manage two facilities and have another job and are doing a podcast. How you would employ those things is going to be very different than how a high school kid who doesn't grocery shop or cook, right? Or a college kid who's at school and there's a cafeteria and they don't have cooking skills yet either necessarily. There are very different ways to employ those things and to uh, practice those skills. And so by understanding those circumstances and who they are and what they value, it's so much easier to collaboratively come up with ways to execute on those strategies that they can fit much more seamlessly. And I don't want to say effortlessly, but with less effort uh, in their particular life. And so when I was like younger, to answer like the first part of your question, yeah, like I said, I was just morally narrow. I was more narrowly focused on like physiological needs, right? How much protein does it that does this athlete need? How many grams of carbs? How well timed does their intake, right? What's their workout nutrition look like? Now these things matter, right? They're what I went to school to study, and uh, you know I've looked deeply into these things. But they can only be successfully applied, right? The, the athlete will only do them continually and successfully when you see the larger picture of of their life. Um, so that you can have a deeper understanding of them as a person, right? And they can employ those things much more easily and seamlessly, like I said before. Second, I would say, I'd say I've become much more nutritionally agnostic. And what I mean by that is I don't subscribe to any, you know, specific eating style like keto or low fat or low carb um, or plant-based or, you know, omnivorous, what have you. Instead, I focus on teaching my clients and my athletes key nutrition principles and skills, and I help athletes follow those principles and build those skills regardless of their preferred eating styles. Whether you eat paleo or keto or plant-based, there are certain things that underlie all of those eating approaches that make them successful, right? Getting in plenty of protein, eating lots of vegetables, eating mostly minimally processed whole foods, etc. So we, I help the clients or the athletes do those things better and more successfully within the context of their preferences, um, rather than trying to force everyone to eat the same way. And not that I feel like I was, you know, overly prescriptive, even in my youth, but I had stronger opinions about um, certain eating styles, where it was, hey, everyone should kind of eat balanced, or I had a stretch where I was emphasizing lower carb, because I was younger and, and more easily swayed. Um, and as I've been around longer and seen more, you just come to recognize and appreciate and realize that various things work for various people, but there are key underlying elements that, that facilitate that, right? That make all of them successful. And then there's minutia that are maybe not minutia. There are smaller pieces that are really about personal preferences or personal values, right? Someone might eat plant-based because of ethical reasons for animals, cool, we can still make sure they get plenty of protein and eat lots of fruits and vegetables, right, and are still meeting their needs. Someone might eat paleo because, right, they don't like eating grains or they make their, you know, they bother their stomach, they have sensitivities. Awesome. We can work with that to still achieve those same principles and skills. And then finally, um, I would say a key con contribution has been like a PN concept that I was exposed to when I came here, something we call deep health. Right. I think oftentimes we have a, a small definition of what health is. Right? It's very focused on like the physical dimension of health. How do you feel? What does your blood work say? Those things are important, um, but we would expand that definition. We, we have it as like six different dimensions, your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, your environmental health, like your social relational health, and what we'd call like your existential health, like having a purpose, a what deeper why. And ultimately, right, there's like a, a feedback loop between our deep health and our actions and behaviors. How we behave and act and like the foods we eat and the lifestyle we live impacts our deep health. And then the status of our deep health also impacts our ability to take action and apply maybe say, better behaviors. So if we don't look at it from that broader perspective and see, oh man, this, this athlete's social health is really impacting their ability to eat well or to get sleep or what have you, right? We miss the larger picture and we just focus on the actual actions, but not the, not the underlying supports that can influence or impact those actions. So when you start looking at it through a broader lens of, do they have a strong purpose and a value system for why they're doing these things, right? How's their, their mental and emotional health impacting? Are they under a lot of stress? Are they not managing their stress well? Maybe we need to help them manage their stress better 
then they can eat better much more easily, right? So you see this, this feedback loop between these two things, right? Their nutritional skills and their nutritional principles and actions and their overall deep health through these various lenses and dimensions. And so by helping viewing athletes through this lens and seeing the different aspects of their health and how it impacts their behaviors and actions and how their behaviors and actions impact these various dimensions of their health, you can ensure that one, they're taking actions and, and behaviors that will improve those various dimensions. Because too often uh, we see athletes who, who make decisions purely based on performance or physical health. A uh, perfect example would be, oh, this was probably five or so years ago. I was working with an NFL player, former first round pick. He was an offensive lineman. And he had gone to this offensive lineman camp. There was this uh, guy, basically a strength coach, who was training a bunch of offensive linemen down south and had all of them eating keto, every single one. Right? It was the opposite of being nutritional agnostic. Everyone had to eat keto. And he's like, at first, man, I felt awesome. I was like getting leaner. I was getting stronger. My performance felt good. So he was like all into it, man, keto is the answer for me. But then he started feeling crappier. He also just realized, you know, he was having issues with his, his partner because she didn't want to eat keto and he asked all he wanted to do. They wanted to go out places. And he was like, so bought in because of the initial results he saw. Um, but ultimately he started having like some mental health issues, some emotional regulation issues, um, some social health issues, you know, disagreements with his partner and physically actually started to now underperform and feel crappier. So it worked awesome at first. And then it started to really impact multiple areas of his life. But it took um, talking and recognizing and him turning around and seeing how it's negatively impacting all these other areas of his life to try a different approach to see, you know, okay, it's still improving my performance, but it's also positively impacting these other areas. And, and oftentimes we can be, as athletes, um, sometimes too narrowly focused on the physical and the performance, which is important. But if it starts to negatively impact other areas of your life, those will eventually oftentimes um, cut short your physical performance output. I so I hope that, that was a, that was a <laughs> that long was, answer to your question. But No, but it was cool. It was a great question because it led to uh, a great answer because it led to five other questions. Which is, <laughs> I, I feel like these podcasts when they're conversational are, are the best. Um, the first thing you talked about was like understanding, you know, social circumstances, the people you spend time around. And we've always heard about like, you know, the, the folks, you know, in your network who may sabotage your effort. Um, but the, the first thing I actually thought of, as you talked about, is I actually, I don't know if you read it, a book I just finished a month or two ago called Subtract. And it was, it was actually a really interesting book because it, it talked a lot about how we are hardwired as a species to add, you know, just because if you go back to the days of hunter gatherers and things like that, like everything was about hoarding food, you know, in one way mm -hmm. or another accessing it. So over the course of time, subtraction became underappreciated. And over the course of the book, they, they talk about, you know, a collection of things like the idea of you have to prune a tree so that important nutrients don't go to dying limbs. And that, you know, there are portions of our brain that have actually gotten smaller to accommodate the increases in the size of portions of our brain that are devoted to, you know, to language. Um, you know, we know there's examples of if you, you know, you simplify the tax code, people are less likely to cheat on their taxes. And he used a quote, from Lao Tzu, to attain knowledge, add things every day. To attain wisdom, subtract things every day. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like when you first start working with someone, whether it's a you know a busy mom of four or a you know a teenage athlete that needs to improve nutritionally, is do you think the first place is to see where you can take away complexities that are unnecessary, or is it to try to initiate you know actions or or new habits that you think will will, will deliver good results? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would say it's often a bit of both. And it depends on, like, I'd say, what we think are the biggest blockers for this client. Um, and so those are oftentimes like your biggest blockers are often your biggest opportunities, but they're oftentimes the hardest thing to change. And then you then you next would see things like low hanging fruit, like it's something that's like not terrible, uh, not great, but they're it's already better than like the big blocker. Um, so it's something that would be easier for them to make another jump up, right? Maybe they're already eating, you know, three portions of protein a day, for example, but they need five. It really wouldn't be probably a huge stretch to get them to four or maybe five, right? Whereas if they were eating zero, get them to five, huge jump. So you have, you have your biggest blockers, then you got like your lowest hanging fruit kind of things. Um, 
but in terms of like subtracting or or, or adding, we generally defer to like adding good things, like adding in protein, adding in fruits and vegetables, um, you know, but if, the, if someone's already doing a lot of those things, but what's holding them back is they have this overly complex plan, right? They're trying to nutrient time this and take this supplement here and do this there and do this. Um, and they're actually, you know, because of that, unable to do it consistently because it's, you know, too complex, then absolutely uh, we want to simplify. And I think the big thing there for me is getting people to recognize or teaching them to understand, like, what are the big rocks of your approach here? What are the things that are giving you your, your that, like the Pareto principle, right? Yeah. The 20% of things that are giving you 80% of your results. Because too often or quite often you see people really dive deep into the minutia because as a, and this will sound awful, um, but almost as a way to avoid the difficult work of implementing big rock pieces every day, right? It's like, oh, it's really difficult for me to do X, Y, and Z, but I can play with, you know, nutrient timing or a fancy supplement, right? These things can sometimes seem important and they can be helpful. Don't get me wrong. Um, but they often don't move the needle in the same way that just getting in, you know, some of those big rock items would be. So things like getting in plenty of protein, right? Eating minimally processed whole foods, getting in a wide, like a colorful array of, of vegetables and fruits, um, you know, hydration. Like it sounds like, of course, everyone's, you've heard hydration your entire athletic life, but yet we still see athletes who are dehydrated um, or who aren't hydrated enough for their performance. So as much as it, it can sound overly simplified, the simple big pieces that everyone has been told their whole life, right? Every, everyone's mom listening has told them to eat more fruits and vegetables, right? But just, it's taking what we were, it's taking what we already know and turning it into what we reliably do. So I would say in general, uh, we tend to go for adding things that we just see that more often. We see clients or athletes who, you know, are eating, you know, fried foods or who are eating lots of processed foods, energy drinks. Um, and so instead, instead of trying to take those things away, we focus on, hey, let's add in good things that are going to nourish you, fuel you, right? Put those big rocks in place. But for a client who's already maybe got some of those things, but has an overly complicated way of delivering them, that's when we look to simplify because they already have, I mean, to actually use your quote, right? They've added a lot of knowledge already. Mm -hmm. Now they need, now for, for it to be a wise approach, it needs to be decluttered and simplified. For someone who doesn't even have the bear, the, the rocks in place, we're looking to add good things to it. A wealth of information creates a scarcity of attention. That was a Herbert Simon quote. And I, in, in our world, I think about it as the person who, you know, chronic aches and pains and has been hitting refresh on WebMD for, for five, <laughs> six years. And sometimes it's really, you know, hey, you're training with terrible technique. This is not working for you. Um, I, I, I chase simplicity wherever possible. And mm -hmm. I think there's nutrition parallels for sure. Um, you know, and you, you maybe hinted at this. So all the way back, uh, you didn't hint at this. I'm, I'm inferring from what you just said. All the way back, we talked about John Berardi's seven habits of highly effective nutritional programs. Um, and that was even something I think we used as a foundation for some of our original paperwork with athletes, yeah. and, you know, adapted it. Um, and I, I'm going to read the seven briefly prior to asking the questions. Number one, eat every two to three hours, no matter what. That should be five to eight meals per day. Number two, eat complete lean protein with each meal. Number three, eat fruits and or vegetables with each meal. Number four, ensure that your carbohydrate intake comes from fruits and veggies, the exception being workout and post-workout drinks. Um, number five, ensure that 25 to 35% of your energy intake comes from fat with it ideally split between saturates, monounsaturates, and polyunsaturates. Number six, drink only non-calorie containing beverages, the best choices being water and green tea. Um, number seven, eat mostly whole foods. Um, and I'm curious, as you listen to that, like, What's your, what's your initial uh, uh, gut take on it? Is it there a lot of maybe, and it depends, or do you feel like that's still a really solid list to work from? I'd say it's, it's still a mostly solid list to yeah. work from, right? Of course, you know, as, as science moves on and as times change and we our understanding evolves, there are some things I would, I would yeah. certainly modify there. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, I'd probably flip number one and number seven for sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Whole foods would be the first thing we're focusing on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the exact number of meals you eat is 
we thought was much more important than we re than it is today, yeah. um, right? There was some early research that indicated you know you should be eating more frequently and it can yeah. provide X, Y, and Z benefits. Um, subsequent research hasn't necessarily borne that out. Yeah. No, so but for athletes, you do need to eat on a regular basis uh, to make sure you're getting enough in overall to support your your output right People, athletes are much more active than even just like your general active exercise person mm -hmm. so you definitely need to eat regularly to support that but you need to eat every three hours every two to three hours um no it's probably a bit much you know three to five meals per day is probably solid for most athletes but protein yes fruits and colorful fruits and vegetables yes um the carbohydrate one for athletes i would expand on that in particular mm -hmm. right like athletes um maybe not as much for baseball players you know it's yeah. not as carbohydrate demanding of a sport as yeah. say something like soccer yeah. right or basketball where you're just moving consistently so much more and it's about um you know inter intermittent powerful expressions so there's less carbohydrate demand but still just they play so many games yeah. um in practice there is a, a grind element there so i would still expand the carbohydrates there a little bit um but for the most part I'd say that's, you know, accurate enough. Um, getting in plenty of healthy fats. I would probably simplify some of the, the language there. Um, but on the whole, yes, you want to make sure you're getting in enough healthy fats to like support hormonal health and, and immune health, particularly like omega-3 fats. So from fish and, and seafood, um, those are the most important. And then um, what was the sixth one again, Eric? Uh, Non-calorie non containing beverages. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's definitely true for most people, you know, depending on their goals. But if you have a, uh, a young, young athlete is looking to gain weight, well, you know, high calorie drinks can be uh, beneficial in that regard. But on the whole, those hold up, you know, really well, considering that's probably 20 years old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, which, that's my take on it is it, it's shockingly good with some asterisk. Yeah, I mean, for something 20 years old, you know, to hold up that well, I mean, it's what it tells me is that the deep underlying principles like I've talked about or those fundamental skills, you know, for the most part, they, they don't change as we've come to understand them. Right, getting in protein, getting in fruits and vegetables, getting in adequate carbs for your activity, right, making sure you have enough healthy fats to support, you know, uh, immune health and hormonal health, drinking mostly calorie-free beverages and eating whole foods. Like that's a damn good list uh, yeah. of, of targets right there. Um, and that's exactly what we try and teach athletes to do and all of our clients to do, whether you like to eat keto or plant-based or paleo. I mean, there are some things where we need to have conversations like, Hey, you're a you know soccer player and you want to eat keto. Well, this might not work out so great. Uh, you know, that's, there's a conversation to be had there, but on the whole, we leverage those same kind of core principles um, and help any athlete do them and do them well, depending on their personal circumstances, values, and preferences. I think that's a, a great answer. And, and so maybe, you know, you consulted with middle schoolers, you know, parents all the way from the you know, professional to, you know, the Olympic athletes, right? So are there key foundational elements of successful nutrition approaches that are consistent across all those levels? you know, beyond these seven, like, what are the, what are the things that you would add if you were able to have bullet points, eight, nine, 10, or however. Many <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, honestly, those are, I would add like um, maybe a larger focus on actually staying hydrated there, but on the whole, those are, and, and omega threes, those are the bedrock elements that help all athletes and the vast majority, um, even in the pros, in my experience, don't check all those boxes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are certainly exceptions, um, yeah. but in my experience with Major League Baseball, in the NFL, in the NBA, um, it's it's astounding how many of those high-level athletes are high-level athletes in spite of how they eat. Yeah. Um, now, often, like as they become older and they become veterans, they you see eating habits change because um, they start to recognize the value and see the see the results of eating better, right? Their performance, their recovery, what you can get away with when you're 22 is you can't get away with it when you're 32 or in, in your case, probably pushing 40. Right. Yeah. Um, so sadly, yes. <laughs> um, you know, that's, it's funny. I, I literally had this conversation. I, I remember it distinctly. It was the day after Thanksgiving, 2015. And, you know, two of our athletes, 
you know, one of them is retired. One of them, you know, just eclipsed 10 years of major league service time. And they came in and, and it was like, man, I feel terrible today. And you know, it is when you were 22, you crushed Thanksgiving and you came in the next day and all you wanted to do was lift big weights yep. and, and get after it. You had this like carbohydrate bloat, like all these other guys, as they get older, like now they come in and their joints ache, they've got headaches. They just feel horrible after they eat the wrong stuff. There is absolutely something that happens in that. 22 to 32 range where you just can't bounce back from eating terrible foods. And I, we, we see it a lot, obviously like, you know, Tom Brady obviously is like the poster boy for, you know, nutrition impacting longevity in the, you know, in the game, regardless of what we think about the, the actual principles, it's something that he highlights, you know, and, and attributes a lot of his success to. Um, but I, I think it's an interesting point. You know, the one I was actually going to ask you about it, if I had to add number eight, it, it would be sleep quality. And I, and I think, you know, speaking from sure. me personally, like, if, if my kids are up all night, I I'm starving the next day. It's, you know, I know there's a very intimate link between, you know, sleep quality and quantity and, you know, the leptin response and appetite and all these things. And we just also know like people who have terrible sleeping habits tend to make poor nutritional choices. If you're that guy that's up until 2am every night, it's not that necessarily eating late is bad. It's that the food that's available to you at that hour, you're more likely to eat crappy food in a pinch because let's be honest nobody's making a, a <laughs> broccoli and spinach omelet at 1 a.m right right no that's 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 a great point and, and so yeah beyond the nutritional components um there are some key pieces there for sure and like sleep is sleep and recovery is huge um you know there's a there was a great article i think it was in espn the magazine a handful of years ago where you know some sleep specialists who consulted in the nba basically created like a little like a little mini algorithm where they could predict with like 75% accuracy when a team was going to lose just based on their schedule. Didn't matter who they were playing because when they played like, you know, this was a handful of years ago before they kind of started cutting back on the back-to-backs or even three games in a row. If they were playing their third night in a row, like they were, there was a 75% chance or 72%. I don't remember the exact percentage, a very, very high chance that team was going to lose no matter what team they were um, because even at that level, like these guys are t- taking care of their bodies and doing what they can. They're not able to recover from their game, their output. And then at that level, like they play late at night, they have to sleep on a plane on their flight home. They're changing time zones. So their sleep is so negatively impacted, um, you know, that they weren't able to recover and perform again the next night and then the next night again. So I think that's, that really speaks to, exactly what you're talking about and like you know i feel it just as just as a dad right a, a dude working like a nine to five um you know and, and lifting in the mornings like when my kids keep me awake or i don't get a good night's sleep for a couple nights in a row it's rough i can't imagine trying to be a performance athlete um you know performing at 11 o'clock at night or if you're from the east coast and they're fine on the west coast or vice versa you know feeling like you're playing at weird times that your body compared to your body signals, right? Your body thinks it's 11 o'clock. Um, you're at 8 p.m. or 11 o'clock uh, West Coast time. So your body actually thinks it's 2 a.m., what have you. It, it's a performance league. And it's like that in all, all levels of pro sports. And so it's it's hard for them to get enough sleep, but that is critical to getting that sleep and recovery. And I, to add to that, I would talk about like stress management. You know, I kind of mentioned it before, but it's an underappreciated, I think, element for for athletes when they have environmental stress or, you know, social or emotional stress, what have you, it can make it really difficult to recover, feel your best, perform your best. Um, You know, you don't end up making your decision-making diminishes. So you end up making poorer food choices because your inhibitions are lowered or you're using food to cope, uh, which is a normal human thing to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and in the moment it can be helpful. Hey, I feel better right now. It relieves some of my stress, but long-term, right. We know it's not going to be helpful for people. So involving like social and environmental support systems mm-hmm. um, in this list, I think would be really helpful. Like for young athletes, that's like their parents. That's one thing, yeah. you know, when I was consulting at CSP way back in the day, I wanted the parents to be in the room because they were the ones, yeah. especially when I was working with the high school athletes, they're the ones shopping for the food, cooking the food, you know, prepping the food. So I wanted that support system in place so that they were on board with what we were trying to do, right? So and with, with pros, it'd be like their agent or their manager or their strength coaches or the even the training and practice facilities, right? Can we change the way these are laid out so that 
the first things they see when they walk in are like some super shakes or some high quality smoothies, right? The hot food bar, the salad bar way at the end is like the you know, some muffins and cookies yeah. that you need to have in there. Cause the executives uh, who also eat there would, would lose their minds if they were gone. Yeah. Right. So we try to shape the path as much as possible through their social supports. Can we get their partner or their spouse or their teammates, right? Their parents on board to help make it easier. And then their environmental supports. How can we shape those and alter those auditing the, you know, whatever's provided by the catering team or talking to the chef or modifying the kitchen setup in a home or modifying the cafeteria layout, whatever the case might be, that can make it so much easier for athletes and people to make better food choices because you're not distracted or enthralled by, right? Especially late at night, right? You're in your kitchen, man, what if there's chips on the counter, you're going to eat it. That's just being human. You're not, it's it's very, very difficult. to, to be deterred at that time. You're not going to so, change the person. You've got to change the situation. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's it. And you can slowly over time, like coach the person to make better choices, but it's obviously much easier when their environment isn't um, actively fighting against them and instead is actively supporting them. And their support system is implicitly and explicitly encouraging as well. Interesting. As maybe a follow-up to that, that sleep time change, et cetera, discussion. I've often said that one way to revolutionize major league baseball, you know, at, at the highest level is to, to, to figure out stimulant usage, because I mean, obviously there's in the old era, there was amphetamines and they're, they're, they're not in the game anymore, but you know, nowadays, it, you know, there are relief pitchers at, you know, at, you know, seven thirty PM who have a Red Bull every night. Right. And there are, you know, guys with Adderall scripts, uh, but we also know that the other thing is, is nicotine is a stimulant and it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's heavily utilized in the game. Um, I've been pretty outspoken, obviously about it just because uh, in, in the words of, you know, of Kurt Schilling who's become a good friend over the years is it's not, if it'll kill you, it's when it will kill you. Um, dipping is not a good decision, but it's rampant at, at certain levels of baseball and particularly in certain geographic portions of the country, you know, maybe speak to the, that side of things, you know, we, we joke, like when you do a study looking at heart disease, you look at nurses, right? Why? Because nurses stay up all night. You know, they have very altered sleep patterns. There's some, some of the really more challenging populations to keep healthy, even if they're very well-intentioned. It's just that it changes their life. Does stimulant use drive athletes down that path? Like, are, are, should we be really careful about the 21-year-old college guy that has to have an energy drink every day that, you know, that energy drink is also, you know, paired with a dip and a couple of cups of coffee in the morning. Like what are the long-term implications for some of these young athletes that are making those decisions? Yeah. I mean, I think the nicotine one, um, you know, goes without saying, uh, I think Kurt hit the nail on the head there, right? It's not, if it's when, um, it's, it's going to have so many downstream impacts, right? Like, as you know, my wife is a dentist, so she sees, the mouths of people who dip um, and the toll it takes on their, you know, their oral cavity makes it over long term and it's make it harder for you to eat. And that may not seem, you know, when you're 20 and it's not impacting you now, it may not seem like a big deal when you're older, like, you know, Kurt, I'm sure could talk about it. when you're older and you're looking back, you're going to have serious regrets about those decisions because of the long-term health implications, the mouth health, the throat health, the, overall bodily health, right? Your risk of cancer. And there's a whole host of issues that increase there. So the nicotine one, I mean, to me, it goes without saying. And now I, at the same time, I understand why athletes are doing this, right? Why are they having the nicotine and the stimulant at, and at 7 p.m. at night, right? Because they are so highly focused on maximizing their performance. Um, but ultimately, this is going to start having detriments on their physical health. So it'll give a a short-term performance boost for a long-term, most likely performance detriment, right? It could in many ways end up shortening your career. If you're not getting sleep and you're not getting recovery, I mean, Tom Brady talks a lot about sleep and he talks a lot about nutrition, which we all know, but he also talks about sleep and recovery. I wouldn't say as much, but he, I mean, he takes it as seriously uh, because he's come to discover how valuable that is, right? And coffee or uh, energy drinks are not sleep in a can, right? So yes, they can give you that short-term boost, um, which might help your your performance, but they're going to come at a long-term cost when you're taking them so late at night and then they're disrupting your sleep. Um, So your sleep is diminished. So now over time, your performance is going to diminish. I mean, there's so much evidence on 
performance being decreased just from one or two nights, usually like a, two nights of, of poor sleep. When you're playing baseball and you're playing, you know, 50, 100 or the pro level, 162 games, um, and you're constantly disrupting your sleep like that, by the end of the season, your performance is going to have diminished significantly. So that short-term boost you got in, in April, um, by the time you get to September, it's, it's taking you, maybe you're going from like an 80 to 100. Well, now you're trying to get from a 40 to a 60 because of that short-term boost you were getting in April. Whereas if you never used that, you'd have been able to probably maintain with, along with some other things that 80 all year long, right? Now you can't even reach that because you've, you haven't recovered for so long or your recovery has been impacted, diminished for so long over the course of a season. So sleep, in my opinion, is undervalued and is slowly becoming more recognized uh, in the performance world, in particular, you're seeing at the pro level where they're changing schedules, they hire sleep consultants to, to figure out you know, when they should even practice, when they should travel for a game, after a game, should we practice today? Um, you're seeing a greater understanding and appreciation of that to keep athletes healthy, to keep them on the field, right, or on the court, on the ice, whatever it might be. So, I mean, in my mind, you know, a little bit of coffee in the morning, no big deal, right? When you're having an energy drink or even coffee late at night, you know, even if people tell you, oh, I can sleep through it, no problem. The research shows over and over again, even if you are sleeping, your sleep quality is diminished. And over time, that's going to catch up to you. You cannot pay that back over a long period of time. You know, in the short term, I'll have a couple nights of poor sleep. You can catch up on that sleep debt a little bit. But if you've been accumulating sleep debt for months, you're not going to be able to pay that all back, right? There's a point of, of no return there. So your, your recovery and then subsequently your performance will diminish over time. And I think that's a key piece for, for athletes to realize is you can't just focus on, okay, we got I got to perform my best today, which is true, but you also want to be able to perform your best at the next game and the next game and come playoffs. And if you are withdrawing from that performance bank now, so that by the time you get to the end of the year, you have no deposits left to utilize, right? So now, now your bank account is empty and you can't dig deep. There is a diminished capacity for you to output and you can't pay that back. So I think that's the most important thing um, for all these athletes to understand is it's a short-term gain for a long-term loss. I love that answer. Um, and maybe, you know, building on, you know, a question from earlier, what noise is present now that that wasn't present, you know, back in 2007, 2008, when you were really kind of getting going with your work in athletes? How is how is whatever's, you know, societal factors that, that you're experiencing now, how has that impacted your ability to get through to athletes with nutrition stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, honestly, hands down, social media, mm -hmm. um, particularly for, uh, for young athletes um, because of, for better and for worse, right? Like they get a connection with athletes um, or and influencers and they see, you know, and they're so, uh, youth athletes are more easily swayed by, that influencer crowd, what this person's doing to look good, what their life looks like, how they seem to be performing and not understanding that a lot of it is performative, right? Here's a perfect picture of me that's been Photoshopped and taken from this certain angle, or here's a story of my life that's, um, you know, a perfectly curated version. So social media is by far the biggest distractor uh, to helping athletes understand and appreciate those big rock things because you know those influencers aren't talking about you know all the fruits and vegetables they ate yesterday uh most of the time right they're talking talking about some supplement they took something they did some overly complicated routine just like you were talking about earlier was trying to simplify makes it harder for them to appreciate the simplicity when they see these people allegedly following these complex difficult programs and it's for better and for worse, they have a greater connection to athletes, like pro athletes, who don't always um, have the background in the physiology, in like those principles. And, you know, they have a coach who says, hey, you should do this thing. And they're like, okay, cool. They do that thing, but they don't necessarily understand the reasons why. And they talk about it on their feeds, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. So Tom Brady would be a great example, right? I mean, his diligence and his work ethic are, are taught unquestioned. But as we, as you kind of alluded to, um, you know, we might nitpick some of the nutrition principles that he talks about. And then you've got these athletes who now want to follow these things and, you know, obviously believe more firmly in what Tom Brady's doing and has to say than what, you know, I might have to say. Um, so we just need to roll with that and leverage it and treat it as an experiment, right? Rather than trying to tell them, you know what, 
Tom Brady's wrong. I'm actually right. That's not going to, that's probably not going to work and build rapport, get them to buy in, right? Not going to suddenly go, oh, you know, oh, clearly, obviously you're just right. Even though you're not a pro athlete, you don't play the sport I play. You don't play the position I play. You know, you're not the greatest of all time. So we roll with that, right? Okay, cool. You want to try this thing? All right. I have some concerns, right? Here's what they are. But if you really want to try it, let's give it a shot and, and we're track for two weeks, three weeks, whatever it might be, and see how that's affecting your performance, your you know, body composition, your, you know, whatever it is we're, we're looking to measure that you're trying to change or improve upon and see how it's working for you, right? If it's helping you, you're feeling good, you're enjoying it, we might just continue with it, even if I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing. I'm not going to try to always win arguments, right? If I have to choose between being right and being helpful, I will choose being helpful. So I think that's that's where there's been more, I'm not going to say pushback, that's not the right word, more competing demands on people's attention and more competing narratives of what's going to help them progress through social media and the internet that we have to roll with and work with in our practice more than we had to before. I like that. And, and maybe it leads into the next question. So let's talk about some hot topics, the things that everybody likes to argue about on, on social media. Um, you know, so athletes nowadays, they're constantly asking about, you know, a few specific topics. So I'm going to ask you when, you, when, when an athlete comes up and says, what do you think of a plant-based diet? What's your answer? And it's obviously impacted by what they watched. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my answer is, is I'll ask more questions first, because that can be a very loaded question, right? They might've already made up their mind that they want to try this thing and they want to see how I'm going to respond. Right. And if I just say, oh, there, it's stupid. You don't want to go down that road. And like, you know, this is so much better. And I've most likely lost that athlete. Or now, now I have become diminished in their eyes because like, geez, this fool doesn't know what he's talking about. He clearly didn't watch this documentary that I saw or whatever the case might be um, that taught me all of these things, right? Even though I might be well aware of all of them. Whereas if I instead, if I, if I face it with curiosity, and wanting to seek to understand and then to be understood, right? Like, oh, okay, what's got you interested about that? Like, what about it stood out to you? What's got you thinking about it? Now I can get a better sense of maybe they're just genuinely curious on my thoughts and I can give them. Or maybe it's, hey, I watched this thing and I'm really, I really want to try it. Um, you know, if they're already mostly committed to it, it's going to change how I roll with that. So, you know, for the most part, plant-based diets can be done very well. They just take more effort and thought and planning because you've now limited your, you know, your plant, your protein rich food base very significantly. So that's really how I'm going to approach it. I'm going to ask genuinely, you know, what got them interested, why they want to know, like, what is it about them that's piqued their curiosity? Because um, I want to understand, are they coming from, hey, I'm just genuinely curious. I kind of heard this thing offhand on the radio and I want to understand more about it. Or is it, I've read about it. I've talked to someone about it. I watched something and I am bought in and I want to do this thing. If it's the latter, cool, we'll talk about it. Hey, here's how you can do it well, right? Here are some pitfalls to watch out for. And again, I would treat it like an experiment. Let's try it for a little while and see how you're doing. See if it's helping you perform better, seeing if it's helped you feel better, whatever jobs you think it's doing for you or you want it to do for you, let's test and measure and see how it's working for you. And much like that story of that pro football player I talked about, let's measure how is it impacting your social life? How is it impacting your mental and emotional health, right? Are you feeling crummy about it? Do you feel like you're not regulating your emotions well? Are you getting distraught? Is it making it hard to eat with your teammates or eat with your partner or whatever the case might be? There are other things about the nutrition than just the performance that we have to keep in mind. Um, so that's what I would do. If it's the first person, right, who's just genuinely curious, hey, we just talk about it from like a knowledge-based standpoint. Hey, there are lots of good things about plant-based diets, right? They emphasize lots of minimally processed foods, lots of fruits and vegetables. Now they might exclude foods that could be perfectly healthy and beneficial for you. And so only you can make that decision on you know, whether or not you want to go down that road, but it's not a requirement for good health, right? So my answer would depend and my, the conversation would depend in part on why they're asking me and what I think they're trying to get out of that conversation. That's a great answer. What about uh, keto? So when we hear an athlete saying they want to go that route, and this has actually become way more common, this conversation than I ever expected it to be. And maybe it's because I'm in the baseball landscape. And, you know, for those reasons you outlined earlier, it's not it, you know, they're not running 20 miles a day. They're not, you know, you know, a, a heavy aerobic sport like soccer or basketball. 
you know, does it lend itself to a, a lower carb lifestyle? Um, I never thought I'd be getting these questions, but I do. Where's your head at? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a similar approach, um, though there are a little more caveats there, right? So it's the same approach. I want to understand where they're coming from and why, right? So I'd use generally the same framework that I just mentioned for the plant-based one, except, right, I would have, depending on the athlete, um, more, more, not necessarily cause for concern, but I would emphasize some caution depending on the athlete. So if they're a baseball player, I'm not going to be super concerned that it's going to negatively impact their performance. It might. And again, if they were really on board with it and really wanted to try it, like I'd say, okay, cool. We're going to treat it as an experiment and we're going to track your, you know, your performance. We're going to track your energy levels. We're going to track the things that, um, that are important to you. But there are a few things that I'm concerned might become problematic such as your energy, such as your sleep, um, to see and your recovery, right? As an athlete who is still using glucose, right? You, you know, no, you're not a soccer player. You're not running multiple miles in the game uh, or a basketball player, but you're still having to have, um, still having to sprint, sometimes still having to sprint repeatedly. You know, there are still moments like that in baseball. So I would, I would be a little more cautious for other sports uh, outside of the baseball world. Um, same thing, right? I would be hesitant it's not something i would recommend to a soccer player or any any intermittent sport athlete soccer hockey baseball lacrosse you name it um football i would not recommend it if they really wanted to try it you know i would outline my cause for concern right like these sports rely on energy systems that use glucose right and your body can only make so much glucose um, efficiently and effectively so we have to take it in through food now if you're really, you know, dead set on trying this, we can, again, I would treat it as an experiment. That's like a frame I like to use a lot. It's, it's just a test. And then we'll just see what happens. And we can always adjust and modify based on the results. We'll, from there, we'll use outcome-based decision-making. What's happening? Not what should be happening. Not what I hope is happening, right? Not what they hope is happening. What is happening? Let's track it and measure and assess. And then based on that information, decide on what to do next. So I would have more caveats and concerns with keto for athletes because so many athletes depend on carbohydrates to truly optimally fuel. Right? The research shows this over and over again. There's almost no population where keto improves performance on the whole. There are individual exceptions, and there's research that shows that too. Um, if you're an ultra-endurance athlete, perhaps, or if you are, if you're going backpacking, you know, in the woods for days, it can be a helpful adaptation uh, to eat keto for a while before that. And then because you can carry fat rich food, it takes less weight. There's a whole bunch of logistical reasons why that's beneficial too. But that's a pretty small percentage of people yeah. that I work with relative to, you know, intermittent sport athletes, right? Where it doesn't, the evidence doesn't currently show any proven advantage or benefit for health, for performance, right? For any of those markers for athletes. Now, but again, like I said, if they're dead set on doing it, I am there to be helpful, not necessarily to be right. So let's yeah. work on helping them do it well, seeing how it's working for them. If it is working, continue to help them do it well. You know, if it's not yeah. working, help them see that so we can make better decisions for them moving forward. I, I think that's a, I mean, effectively it's coaching, you know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's very easy to tell everybody, do this, do this, do this but the lessons often are better learned if, if, if you're guiding them to that discovery, you know, if you're facilitating their ability to learn that lesson in a way that's going to be more impactful for them remembering it. And they're learning it through it's experiential learning, right? Yeah. I've actually tried this thing and we measured outcomes and we saw that it wasn't actually helping me. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's going to be way more effective than me saying, Hey, this isn't going to help you, but they just, you know, saw, Tom Brady or whomever talk about how it is going to help them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to win that argument in most cases. Mm -hmm. So instead of rather than trying to win or be right, I'm going to choose to be helpful and guide them to see, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will work for them. Right. Maybe, maybe there's some athletic anomaly mm -hmm. uh, or I can let them experience it and try it themselves and test it out for themselves and see what their actual outcomes are. And then they'll learn whether it does work for them or not. Um, and that's going to be much more effective than, than me trying to, you know, argue with, you know, whomever they got that information from. 
it's, I think it, where, where it becomes challenging, I mean, I'll give you the example. We had a minor league prospect this offseason who's a, a very athletic young uh, prospect in his early 20s who, you know, threw it 94 to 96, really good arm, great curveball. And he's like, hey, I want to I want to get more cut up. And, you know, for a guy to say that at 6'3", 195, you're you're concerned because you're you're not really heavy enough in the first place. We kind of use 6'3", 205. It's kind of like a, a baseline of where people should be. And, you know, he's like, I want to get leaner. And, you know, he kind of went off and did it on his own and he showed up a spring training. He was 90 to 91. It's like, it's very obvious this didn't work. Mm-hmm. And you, you hate that it's a, you know, in his eyes, it's an off season wasted, um, you know, but he had to learn that lesson, you know, no matter how much we wanted to say, and we, we did say, I don't think it's a great idea. Here are probably some other strategies, making better food choices while maintaining weight and just trying to improve body composition. But, you know, that was a lesson that he kind of had to learn and it, it won't be a lesson I'll have to learn again. Um, velocity is velocity. It's a very, you know, objective measure of whether something worked. And it's probably the most important measure in most of these kids' eyes, whether that's right or wrong. So, yeah. And it's, it's a great, I mean, it's an unfortunate example, yeah. um, but like, it's a great example because if you had just tried to, you know, hammer against that, that athlete, the chances are they were still going to try it anyway. And so now you lost respect or you lost, yeah. um, you know, you didn't feel like they didn't feel like you were out to help them. They feel like you were out to just be right. Well, the thing I also now have in my back pocket is I have that athlete in our gym. Anytime that conversation ever comes up in, in you know, with another athlete who's going through it, you know, and you say, Hey, if you're, if you're 240 and you're thinking of going to 230, that's a totally different ball game from going 195 to 185. Like those right. 10 pounds are a markedly different percentage of absolute, you know, total mass. So, um, you know, and then maybe the last one I want to ask about is, is intermittent fasting. Cause I actually do think it, it's an intriguing experiment in the, in the baseball world, just because the majority of games, you know, particularly at the professional level are played at night. Um, it does seem like there are a lot of athletes that, that do well with it. I see people doing it by accident where it's the kind of thing where, you know, you play a seven o'clock game by the time you get home, it's almost midnight. Um, you know, they might eat right after the game and, you know, they ha- it takes time to wind down. They're in bed at one. They, they may sleep till nine and then they'll just, you know, wait a couple hours before they get to the stadium. So they wind up like kind of eating, you know, one to 10 PM or something like that. It, it works for their lifestyle. And you, there's never that feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. And I have to go and you know, I have to, I have to work out hungry, you know, have you seen that be effective for certain athletes or is it something you try to steer clear of? Um, No, it's not something we necessarily steer clear of. It's I'm less concerned about, you know, like that, that approach to intermittent fasting uh, where it's, I won't even necessarily even call it intermittent fasting. It's like uh, (laughs) delayed onset of eating is really what it is. Right. Ultimately, because they're still eating every day. Um, just in a slightly shorter window, right? So it's like a time-restricted feeding. I think it's actually what, what we're calling it these days in the literature. Um, and there's late time-restricted and early time-restricted. But ultimately, if an athlete is having to perform late at night and they get up, I mean, that's 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 their schedule, right? So there is, so long as they are following those same principles we talked about earlier, right? And are getting in enough overall energy to meet their needs, right? To support their growth and development, to support their physical output and to maximize their performance and recovery, then I don't care if they're eating over the course of nine hours or 12 hours, right? That's, that's ultimately an irrelevant time period that the exact hours don't matter. Now there, you can make some arguments that you want to make sure people are spreading out their protein intake over three to four in over three to four meals, Maybe now that might make a little bit of a difference. Um, but if they're eating from 1 p.m. to 10 p.m., that is still a very doable thing to accomplish. You know, if they're if an athlete's trying to, you know, follow OMAD eating one meal a day, um, that's a different conversation. Uh, we might try to, you know, again, talk about the pros and the cons and the concerns and treat it as an experiment. But on the whole, like intermittent fasting uh, generally tends to work well for athletes at that level because of their schedule. You know, and like, for example, like my wife, essentially does that time restricted feeding. She doesn't like eating breakfast. She's not hungry for breakfast. She doesn't eat until 10 AM. And then we eat dinner at 6 PM and and that's it. So she eats for eight hours and, you know, quote unquote fasts for 16. Whereas I'm like the minute I wake up at five, five 15, right. I'm eating some food. I'm having some dark chocolate with my coffee. Like I'm not, I don't mess around. I I need food pronto. And that works for me. Uh, But my, my wife's approach works for her and a lot of those athletes. So long as again, you are, Taking, checking off those boxes of hitting those minimums, um, 
it's not going to matter. Now, if you're getting into more advanced versions of, of fasting, where you're fasting for an entire day, you're only eating like 25% of your calories for a day, or you're fasting twice a week, that's a very different type of fasting, right? That's That would become more concerning or problematic from a performance standpoint, because it's going to be much harder for you to get in adequate overall energy intake uh, and protein and carbohydrate intake to maximize your recovery and to fuel yourself for your performance. So that's where I would get a little more concerned. The daily like time-restricted feeding, far less, far less concern um, than like larger blocks of time, 24, 36 hours of fasting. That's where I would become um, more concerned. Nice. All right. So last one. And, you know, I think we always have the the broad range of people who listen to a podcast. Some, you know, folks are looking for more foundational knowledge and others are looking to get sexier. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you're interacting with athletes who may be looking for advanced blood work, you know, professionals with, you know, financial resources to spend on more advanced panels, what are the things that you're, you're looking for? You know, there, you know, is it vitamin D, is it magnesium? What are the things that you're, you're intrigued to check out? Yeah. I mean, not as many as you might think. Um, you know, definitely some, particularly if someone's already checking off a lot of the big rocks and they're, you know, they're getting their protein, they're getting in all, all those uh, nutrition principles. They've done some of the ones you mentioned, like the sleep, they're managing their stress, right? They, overall, we feel like they're doing everything they can to improve their performance and their deep health. And yet something still doesn't feel quite right. Or if they're a pro athlete and they just have access to to more advanced testing where they can really try and fine tune those little bits of performance, you know, we'll look at things like inflammatory markers or C-reactive protein, uh, things like that. Omega-3 index um, would be a big one for overall health and performance. And then, yeah, individual nutrient status. Magnesium is definitely a big one um, because we see so many people who have a, a low intake of magnesium. Vitamin D as well. But I've seen, uh, you know, there's been like the endocrine society and some other bodies like that, in my opinion, uh, endorse a vitamin D intake that's, that's quite high. Uh, so to me, vitamin D has like a sweet spot of, you know, being in the range of like 20 to 40 nanograms per milliliter or, or basically 30 to 40 is probably your best bet. Uh, more than that, and there's actually some potential downsides, you know, less than that, and there are some definite downsides. So vitamin D, you know, but not overdoing it you know, with your supplementation, magnesium, definitely a big one. Um, you know, you can look at B vitamins as well, but generally, you know, people in Western civilizations don't have B vitamin de deficiencies, uh, but it'd be something to be mindful of as well because of their importance in so many bodily functions, Krebs cycle and things like that. Um, but omega-3 index would be a big one. And then inflammatory markers, simply because it's going to ultimately impact brain health, so your mental and emotional health, it's going to impact physical health and performance, it's going to impact recovery. So inflammation would be the big one, your C-reactive proteins, um, maybe even interleukins, depending on what, how much they go down that path on, on the testing. But those would be the things I would be looking at um, for the most part. You know, and you can get into, uh, you know, testosterone and, and, and um, sex hormone panels, uh, but now you're getting into a realm where I would need help to truly interpret that. I mean, I can look at it and I have thoughts and ideas, um, but it's outside my scope of practice to be like truly interpreting that information other than, hey, noticing and naming it to the athlete. Hey, I noticed, you know, X, Y, and Z thing. Your free testosterone seems to be low, whatever the case might be. This might be something to discuss with your doctor. It's certainly not something I would treat, um, but sex hormone panels are often indicative of overall health, but people's healthy ranges can, can be quite significant. So just because it's, you know, you're on the low end of healthy or the high end of healthy doesn't mean that it's necessarily high or low for you. So I'm always leery of trying to do too much interpretation there myself, other than, Hey, this is something you might want to discuss with your doctor. So sex hormone status, uh, inflammatory markers, omega-3 index, and some individual nutrient status, particularly things like magnesium and vitamin D. I like that. All right. So I got one final question as we wrap up. 
one of the things that I've come to realize about this podcast is that we have a lot of parents and kids that are listening to it together. You know, the 14 year old baseball player in the car with mom and dad on the way to practice on the way back from tournament, whatever it is. And what we know since both of you and I are both parents, um, a lot of times there are messages you want to deliver your kids. that just aren't quite as impactful when they come from mom and dad, but when you have an outside coach or other resource that delivers that message, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely something that's delivered more effectively. So I'm curious if you could give out one message to the teenage athlete with respect to nutrition as he or she is listening to this, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. There's so many things I want to say. <laughs> I would probably say, I mean, honestly, I think I would return to our sleep conversation, right? Like in my experience, you know, and I, my time at CSP and working with, with high school athletes, um, I just saw such a huge like energy drink consumption. And, uh, you know, again, they are not sleep in a can. They are not uh, going to dramatically improve performance. Um, they might feel cool and give you a, a slight boost, but on the whole, they're, they're going to, particularly if you have, you know, more than one of those a day, that's going to ultimately withdraw from that performance checking account to use that analogy I, I mentioned before. Yeah, you might get that slight boost from that withdrawal, but over time that account's going to diminish. And when you go to draw on it, when you need it most come playoffs, uh, right. Or come the following sport, if you play multiple sports in a year, right now, your now your bank account is diminished and you don't have enough for withdrawal and you don't have anything left in the tank when you go to reach for it. So minimize that use and really ensure you're getting high quality sleep. I know it can be challenging as a teenager because of school schedules and work schedules and our, you know, our times shift as teenagers. We tend to go to bed later, but ensure that you are trying to get like those eight to 10 hours of sleep every night. That's going to maximize your recovery and improve your performance as much as anything else you do. Um, and so don't withdraw from that or diminish that by having, you know, multiple energy drinks in a day. So I would say that's one of the biggest things uh, that stands out to me to help with long-term performance. It's not going to make you play better tomorrow, um, but it's going to help you play better in a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. Like that play the long game. Um, so Brian, this was tremendous. Also a great opportunity to catch up and hear what you've been up to. I know you're, a, you're an intimate cog in the wheel um, at Precision Nutrition. Folks can learn more about that. It's precisionnutrition.com. Um, they also have you know, great stuff, regular infographics, things like that on both Twitter and Instagram. So um, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, really, really good stuff. And I'm, I'm sure everyone listening really benefited. Oh, thanks for having me, Eric. This was this was a good time. I definitely appreciated catching up. It's it's been too long, so it was it was a good time to chat. Awesome, man. We'll talk again soon. All right, take care. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.